Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 302. Today is Sunday, the 11th of November, 2018. And this interview is with Marty Neumeyer. Marty is a best-selling author, having published such venerable books as The Brand Gap, The Brand Flip, and Metaskills. His latest book is Scramble, How Agile Strategy Can Build Epic Brands in Record Time. In this conversation with Marty, we talk about the creative process of converting a business book into a business thriller. What are the keys to making an agile strategy and process work? The importance of design and new leadership skills. And how important is the role of the board in today's business world? A stimulating conversation. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue podcast, where we discuss branding and all things digital. I am Minter Dial, your host, and you'll find the show notes on my eponymous site, MinterDial.com. Enjoy the show. Marty Neumeyer, great to have you on the show, piped directly in from California. You and I met in London and had a wonderful exchange. You're, the, you're a multiple author of best-selling books, including the wonderful Brand Gap, and most recently, Scramble. Um, and so tell us in your own words, how do you describe who you are, Marty? I work for Liquid Agency, and uh, we're consultants in branding and, and corporate culture. Uh, I'm also the author of eight books on branding, innovation, and design. Um, so I've just finished a book called uh, Scramble. It, it's a business thriller about agile strategy. So at your heart, you are, at the one hand, a brand guy, but you're also a designer. Yes, I started as a designer and um, became a copywriter also, then a journalist, um, became a publisher, and uh, then I've kind of come, taken all those skills, come back into uh, the sort of client-facing work that we're doing now at Liquid. Uh, but mostly my job is to, to be the kind of a thought leader at large for the company and uh, travel around and uh, talk about branding and, and strategy uh, and bring attention to our firm. So I, it's fair to say at some level you are again a publisher. I am, yes. Uh, I'm a self-publisher now, uh, mostly out of necessity because um, the publishing business has changed quite a bit, as you know. Uh, so it's uh, I have a publishing company called Level C Media, and I'll be uh, publishing my own books from now on. Hey, will you be taking any other people for publishing? I probably will, yes. Uh, we'll be pretty selective about that, but you know, I'm building kind of a, uh, a, a kind of shadow educational system for people in, in uh, branding. So um, I'll be probably publishing other people who do books on branding and culture, or strategy, those kinds of things um, as I find them. Well, I can imagine, well, you know, for having shared, you've shared with me so many of, of your experiences going through self-publishing that, that that accumulated experience is so valuable. I mean, I really appreciated your sharing with me what you've learned. But, um, you know, for people who are new to it, it really does help to have someone who's been through the process to help you understand the ins and outs, the pricing, the, the volumes, the, the mechanisms for promoting, and so on. Yes, you know, um, <coughs> tradi- traditional publishing, um, most of the people who are in it um, – got into it when it was pretty much a set thing. It was, you know, there was a way to do it. And um, what you had to do is just learn the ropes, right? But it already existed. There were 
there was knowledge out there that you had to absorb. But now we're in new territory. So, uh, you know, with with ebooks and audiobooks and Amazon and so forth, and traditional publishers aren't really equipped to deal with innovation like that, right? Because they've never had to. Um, and so they're kind of caught flat-footed. And then people like me who are kind of, I, I want to get into it, I want to learn about it, but also I have to because the industry is changing. I'm a little bit better equipped to um, to figure out how to do this. Unfortunately, there is not enough information about how to do it. There's no there's no source you can go to that's really credible. You know how to be a successful self publisher. That book does not exist. So on the one hand, you've got the publisher published experience. Now you got self publishing, and you also have your own following, which clearly is, I would say, in any event, the gold of any author, because as soon as you have people who are interested in what you say and what you write, you have a, an audience, and that's what publishers ought to be looking for. Well, they are looking for it, and but they're not willing to contribute to that. That's, like, that's a shame. So, so that's the situation you're in now if you're a business author or a you know thought leader of any sort, um, and you go to a publisher, they'll say, well, a good book, but um, how big is your platform? Right. That's the word they use. So the platform essentially means how many followers do you have? Right. Unless you can claim, oh, I don't know, at least a hundred thousand, maybe a million, even if it's fake, yeah. um, they won't listen to you. So, but they will listen to you if you just lie about it. They'll probably just accept that because they have no idea, right? So, if that's true or not. So it's just a, it's a bad situation. So, right now. of your eight books, Marty, uh, the scramble is clearly on a different path. At the very least, it's written in a, such a different way from what you've written in the past. And I wanted to ask you. I mean, because I, I read The Goal when I was at business school, and so it, it immediately flashed me back into the factory as I'm going through all the the uh, bottlenecks and, and understanding that through this, this manager of the factory and his experience. What was the creative process you used to, to write this? Because it, it really is, a, 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 I would say, a business thriller. It's funny you should mention the goal because that is exactly the model for the book. And I'd never even heard of the book before, but um, a CEO friend of mine uh, had read it in college and with his uh, cohort, and they loved it, and they learned a lot from it, and he never forgot that experience. And he'd been reading all my books, in, including the more the more difficult ones like Meta Skills, and he said, you know, you should write a book like The Goal. I think you could really do it, and it really... Um, helps to understand something complex if you can put it into a story. And I said, I've never heard of the goal. And he goes, well, you ought to read it. And so um, I got a sample, you know, like you do online uh, on Amazon. And I read it and I went, oh, no, I I couldn't do this. This is so corny. Um, Well, corny isn't exactly the right descriptor. I think it, it struck me as almost just an outline for a thriller, like just denuded of all the... All the emotions and everything. Right. I mean, the, the, the well, tension it, was there and all it that. Did it have some just, em- but kind of formulaic. But it did have some emotions in it. It, it, did, it did try to be- talk about some of the relationships, and uh, which had no strict business concepts. Well, th- that's it. That's what I kind of objected to. I said, this is just kind of layered over the top of this uh, problem. Okay, so his, in the story, his, uh, he's having trouble with his wife because he's overburdened at work. Well, right. that sounds logical. I mean, he's... Totally. He's working too hard. He's working too many hours because he's got these problems he can't solve. So that is related to it. But wouldn't it be good if the 
the emotional aspects of the thriller story came right out of the problem, um, you know, out of the problem that they're dealing with. And the characters all have integral parts of this, you know, take integral parts of this, the solution and, you know, just weave it a little more tightly and also get some of the nuance in that you get from a real thriller, you know, more of the psychological parts that were kind of left out. So I would say in the goal, he did a good job of, of creating a situation that had tension in it, therefore emotion. So that part he got right. I appreciated that. So I just thought, what if it's less corny, a little more, uh, John Le Carre, you know, if that, not that I could be him, but um, a little more like that. Uh, how would that, how would that work? And so I, I started to warm up to the idea, and I said, you know, I'm just going to do it. We'll see. Well, so you've got these business concepts you 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 have to put through, which include, of course, the agile mentality. And and presumably figuring out teamwork and and working through problems under time pressure, I, I suppose, as you went into this. How did you go about crafting the story? Because at one hand, you you have a process that you want to put through. And let's say you could have put that in chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, process one, chapter process two, process three. Yet you've got to wind this through a story. And I'm just wondering, how did you go about that? Did you really... Did you plan it out chapter by chapter? This is what these individual characters are going to do. And this is when I'm going to insert concept one, concept two. How did that go about? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I'm big on um, plotting, um, um, outlining. Um, But the wonderful thing about um, writing any kind of fiction is that once you get it going, you know, and you know where you're headed and you know what's going to sort of crop up along the way or what could crop up to to stop the forward movement of the protagonist and he's got to fight it every chance. You know, you can start to see the the uh, trajectory, the ups, the downs, like maybe it's solved. No, it's not solved. It's worse than it was and it comes back. You know, you can figure out the arc of the story. Um, but even if you have all that, you start writing and things, the characters just take over. It's, That's it. It's, it's magical. It is. And then and all of a sudden you, you find yourself typing a thing which you had no idea. I mean, this is how I work. I had no idea, but that comes out. And it's an exogenous thing. What? What? And then, all right, well, what happens if that? All right, sure, why not? And you sort of end up having to go with the flow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's killed a lot of books because authors will get like to the middle of those characters will take it in a completely different direction. And then it just doesn't do what they wanted it to do. So they start over. Um, But that's that's a good thing about outlining is you can kind of um, sketch it in and you can see how this is going to work and where the surprises are going to be and where the learning is going to be. Because you want to put the drama where the most learning has to happen, right? You have to make it, you have to tie it in exactly with what you're trying to teach them. All the emotions need to be at that point because you you remember it. So, so, you know, you have to weave those together and it's, um, it's, it is tricky and, and, um, and it's a mysterious process, but you, you have control, right? I mean, you're not going to put out a book that you don't think is good and that other people who have read it don't think is good. So, it's totally under under your control unless you have some deadline that you know from, you know 
deadline that's you have to hit no matter what um and you don't if you usually if you're writing a book well, so you just uh, let just keep writing until it's till it's where you want it to be i love this idea of you have control because i mean of course the word i'm going to write after the, the the word number one is word number two and you would have thought that word number two is under my control because the first word is the and then i can choose the next word word number two but funnily enough, it's just like saying I can control my personality or control my mood. Somehow, <laughs> <laughs> the creative bug makes that word number two just sort of flip out. And then all of a sudden, you've got to refer back to your outline to, to you know, I would say, reorganize that little thought. Yeah, you're having a conversation with your work and it's talking back to you and you're, ta- you know, you're saying, OK, in that case, let's try that. And it talks back to you again. Um, but yeah, as I said, the beauty is you don't have to let that book out right. if it's not working and you can fix it or you can toss it and take a deep breath and start over, but you do have control. And so then it becomes, um, a question of how high is your bar, right? Right. And, and that's a question of how much have you read before, right? <laughs> do you really know what quality is. And so I always have to question that because I, I know people who are way bigger readers than I am. So I have to contend with them as readers. And, um, but, but also there's a way to, to work with that too. You, you, you engage those people who have read a lot and you get feedback from them and you find out, Oh yeah, that's, that's, that's thin there. I got to fatten that up or that character is just too cardboard. I need to round him out or her out. You know, you learn on the fly. And then there's lots of classes you can take. This is what I did. I took um, classes in in suspense writing and read books on it. Another thing which you told me about, which I found fascinating, which is that you you kind of co-wrote it. I mean, I don't mean with another author, but you allowed other people to participate as you wrote it. You, you gave away or you, you said, read chapter one, what do you think? And, and I did, yeah. In fact, it follows the trajectory of the story where... In the story, David Stone, the CEO, has a problem, serious problem he needs to solve in a short amount of time. And he tries to, because he's pressed for time, he tries to solve it himself at first. And then he has to slowly open it up to other people to get more help. And that's where, that's kind of his journey. It's like opening up to people um, and actually leading people instead of just doing the work himself because he's very talented. He could do a lot himself. And I, and I think... That's kind of how this book went too. So I started writing with uh, I started writing only for my CEO friend who suggested that I write the book in the first place because he said I want to I want to be with you on this journey. Just like send me chapters, and we talked about the trajectory and so forth. And he had some ideas there, and then as he's reading, he might say, you know what, you're missing a character. You have to have someone whose sole uh, responsibility in the company is bringing in revenues. You have to have like a Chief revenue, revenue officer. officer or something like that. I go, oh my god, yes, I do. What am I thinking? Raven, that person, yeah. right? So, um, so he's helping me from his CEO perspective. And that'd be Andy. I mean, I, I've been a CEO too, but not of a company the size of this. And so he has. So, um, so he was the first audience, and then I started opening it up chapter by chapter to my, a wider audience of people. And pretty soon, I mean, before the book even came out, I think there have been. Two or three thousand readers of the book. Wow! So, um, I, I, being brand kind of guy and uh, creative in this particular case for sure, 
you've uh, had the pleasure of naming people, naming brands. And so <laughs> I, I couldn't help but smile. But of course, Minter's interpretation. I thought of the uh, of Guard and and uh, Phil Stein. You, how much fun did you have naming all of them? And did you have intentionality in every name? You're on to me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a namer. And, you know, one thing I've noticed, uh, this could be just an illusion. It could be some sort of psychological bias or something. But it seems to me there's an awful lot of people out there in the world, successful people, whose jobs or whose contribution to society is reflected in their name. <laughs> I think of a writer named Francine Prose, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, you, you find a lot of uh, names that suggest what people do. And you know, I'm tempted to write a book about that someday and really get to the bottom of that. Do names, does your name influence what you do in your life in some way? Maybe that's not even understood by you. So, um, so the names may seem... Um, kind of uh, inside jokes, let's say. Uh, but I actually think a lot of names in the world fulfill that same, that same so, pattern. So we should call you Marty Neunheimer. 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 Something like that. Yeah, so um, yeah, all the names are intentional, but they're not all named in the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of them are allegorical, and um, I think you kind of will let people figure it out. But yeah. Phil Stein is part of um, a duo of names that are both allegorical. Um, If you figure that out, you got the whole story figured out pretty much. Um, Socrates, the Uber driver that appears in the first chapter and and then um, throughout the book pops up from time to time. Asking questions. Yeah, so his friends call him Socrates, but his real name is Dimitri Socorus. So it sounds like Socrates, and he's you know Greek heritage. Heritage, so um, if, you know everything has to fit together, and it seems like a logical thing that his friends would twist his name around and say they call him Socrates because he asks too many questions. Of course, so, right? And then uh, other other names just um, are feel right for the part. Mm-hmm. Uh, Guard Scott is the one you. Know, I'll let you in on the and your listeners in on the secret there. Guard Scott is the only really in joke of of the all the names. Um, he's named after uh, the the founder of our company, whose name is Scott Gardner, mm-hmm. and so uh, who also played uh, baseball, just oh. like and was Gard. Pit- so, was a pitcher. Um, so yeah, David Stone was a pitcher, right. and his catcher was the guard, um, right. guard Scott. Yeah. And and there is a feeling that guard G A R D is G U A R D because he's helping to guard David's business he's right. he's taking charge of this and also um catchers wear face guards there's just mm-hmm. a lot of sort of um you know connections Fitting. you can make with that and uh, also a catcher in a baseball situation he commands the field uh the the um he's he commands the infield he's giving signals to everybody so in a sense that's what he's doing in the story he's taking david's staff his executives and helping to guide them through this process that uh, is new to David. And in the process, David learns how to do it. From a, an experience standpoint, and thinking of the role of Guard, Scott Guard, do you believe that this kind of a process for a company that's spiraling or you know under, under duress, the CEO's position's at risk, 
do you do you think that the the individual that you need to have that kind of an external input in order to sort of write the ship and 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 obviously is that process something that you would subs- to which you would subscribe for anybody who really needs to get their shit straight yeah i would say especially if a company's in trouble and they're stuck for time they're going to have to open it up and get some experts in immediately but what i would like to say to to readers is you should be doing this process the whole time you should have regular people on the outside that you call in as catalysts for this work because they're bringing a lot of information that crosses industries so they've seen a lot right they may they don't know your company uh to the depth that you know it but they've seen a lot of they've seen a lot of patterns right and they can bring a lot of ideas from other industries into it so that's the advantage of bringing someone else in but, but you know it's it's a whole ecosystem isn't it you've mm-hmm. got internal executives you've got um uh, specialists in different areas of the business maybe you bring in if you're going to do a kind of swarming um uh session like we do in the book you might bring bring in some customers who have customers point of view um, so you bring a lot of people together to do this work and then you then they go away it's kind of like the hollywood model of making movies mm-hmm. the hollywood model is uh, every movie is its own company. It's a project. It's named after the movie. Um, you bring a lot of specialists together for the for that project, and when the project's done, you disband everybody and they go and do it, do other jobs, right? So it's constantly um, the team is constantly changing, and that's that's the, the essence of agile strategy, agile design, all that stuff is getting people to work on a project for the length of the project. At the same time, for for David, he's got this challenge of different parties. He doesn't know his allies. He got people with different perspectives. He's got the external team he's got partnered with, but the rest of his team may not appreciate them the same way as he does. And so it brings up this whole issue of a sort of a multidisciplinary and multi-angle team and managing that beast, including the pressures from Andy and the and the board. Yeah, he's getting pressure from the founder, who's. Um now the chairman of the board, who's getting pressure, you find out later, from the board itself. Um, and that's a whole other story that's interesting. But um, he's putting the pressure on David because it's David's job. He's the CEO. He's he's a young CEO. He's out of his depth. But Andy Vineyard, the, the founder, understands that completely. And so he's just going to – it's going to be trial by fire, essentially. So he's dumping it all back on David. And David learns that even though he's been with the company for a year, um, he hasn't really put in the effort to build a team, like mm. build the camaraderie of the team, and to even understand their personal needs and so forth. So they, that's the first thing he finds out. It's like he's been remiss in in uh, really getting his team to work together like a well-oiled machine. They just they haven't ever had to do that because they the the business has been running itself for a number of years. Uh, until the point where you know some some uh, outside influences have messed up their trajectory, so um, now they have to do something different. One of the, one and, of the, and the, then then they're thrown into confusion. Yeah, one of the things that has struck me, and I, and I must say, I sort of grinched. I, you know, I grinched at it. I, I I frowned at it because he he starts off this thing. Well, let's get to know each other, and and ideally, really, the issue is that you can't just sort of do that under the heat. Because that's something you should be doing all the time. And then when you get to the, when the shit hits the fan, 
the fact that you do know each other, you do know the agendas and the personal issues and all that, it helps you relate and be empathic and, and also extract that discretionary energy that you need in order to get through the shit. Yep, that's it. And I thought that was a moment for me. Yeah, I mean, that's that's part of the lesson here is you've, you've got to be doing this the whole time and he, and he gets stuck because he hasn't put in that work. He's been doing other things. And suddenly he wishes he had that team working. He find that, finds out how differently they think, right? And how they're they're not equipped to, to be very innovative, right? They've never had to do that. He has because he's he came right. from a creative business. He was an architect before he became a CEO. And um, so he's used to building things and being very innovative and creative. But he can't do it himself, right? He needs a whole team. He needs the whole company behind him. So... Uh, now at the last minute, he has to kind of in the eleventh hour, he has to 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 build this team. Uh, another thing I thought was interesting was the dynamic of the choice of the team. So from a small team, he expands it, he retracts it, and I, that's also interesting because at some level you're trying to you know you want everybody's opinion, you want to be diversity, you want to be consensual, but you also need to make decisions. And so there's that notion of getting the right players at the right time. To get the decisions most, you know, optimally. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's it. Yeah, and I think the pattern that it took is pretty much the pattern that you should take, which is you start small with a small group of people, let's say five or six, um, as a steering committee for this. Then you open it up to get everybody's opinions, relevant opinions, and then you close it back down when you need to uh, move on it. Right? You you go back, so it's always uh, expanding and contracting as needed. Another area I found really interesting, Marty, was about the board and the position and the the role of the board of governors. And, uh, you know, for having been on a few boards, uh, I see board the board of governors having a great importance, but so often misfiring and not actually appropriately pressuring, if you will. Uh, my thought was, what what is your bottom line message, key learnings about how to have a, a constitute a good board? Well, boards have such an important role to play. I mean, they represent the interests of the shareholders and other stakeholders to ensure the long-term prosperity of the company. I mean, that's that's what they should be keeping their eye on. And where they sometimes go wrong is by confusing short-term goals with long-term goals. And it's so easy to do um, because shareholders can get grabby. You know, they want a lot of shareholders are not patient, right? They just want money now. The faster they can double their money or whatever their goal is, the the better. So, on the other hand, the board members have a duty to keep the company on an even keel for the whole voyage, not and not bow to unhelpful pressure. So, I would say what they need to keep in mind is what I call the brand ecosystem. Uh, there's a drawing of it in uh, uh, of an infinity loop in the back of the book, and it shows how one thing leads to another to create an, an ecosystem. So the job of management is to nurture employees. The job of employees is to serve customers. The job of customers is to attract investors. And the job of investors is to support management. And around and around it goes, and it creates this infinity loop. So when investors... Um, step out of their role of supporting management and and start to uh, su- support the short-term 
goals of shareholders, they can mess up the company. And that happens quite a bit. And sometimes you've got activist um, board members who, um, you know, are there just to sort of uh, loot the company in a sense. So you got to watch out for them. So the, the job of investors is not to lobby for shareholder profits that could hurt the company's long-term prospects. The one area of that loop that strikes me as interesting, which I haven't heard before, is really about customers attracting investors. Can you elaborate well, on that one for me? Yeah, customers equals um, revenues, right, and loyalty. And so if, you, if you're if you an investor and you see this company like attracting tons of customers and they're, they're excited customers, you know, emotionally connected to the company, you're going to say, that looks like a really strong company. I want to be involved in that. So, so um, that's that's what that's what pulls them in. Yeah, but right. but their job isn't to extract money directly from the customers, you know, for investors. That's just not their job. It's to support management in the long term goals of the company. And when you've got a CEO who may be only there for three years, I mean, the the makeup of the board may last longer than three years. So, I mean, they've got sort of the long-term responsibility, in my mind. Hmm. Much like creative agencies used to in the past. Yeah, I would say so. Right. Uh, all right. One last topic, Marty, which probably the most polemic because it begins P.O.L. Um, you have not hidden back on your political standpoint. So uh, it was with great uh, wry smiles that I noticed that uh, you've got this company, Big Sky, that overlooks a company called Bull. And so um, there's probably, and you'll explain in your own words, what that was for. But um, to what extent was your politicization and, and, you know, let's say undertones within that, was that something that you just sort of felt that that's what Marty Neumeyer needs? Or did you think of it as something as part of your customer base? And, you know, so just how did you position that? Let's go with that. I'll start by putting my cards on the table. I lean more liberal than conservative. And this is partly because I came of age during a corrupt phrase of conservatism, the, the Vietnam years. And partly because I'm in the creativity and innovation business. And that requires a willingness to question the status quo. And most of my clients are in the same, you know, I, I do a lot of work in Silicon Valley and with progressive companies, so uh, I'm not running a huge risk <laughs> of upsetting them uh, with this character. But I also think I did it in a, in a kind of a lighthearted way, slightly lighthearted, and I've renamed uh, the President of the United States, Richard Bull. Um, and um, the, the sort of running gag, if you will, is that... Um, the Bull Building is right across from the Big Sky Building where they work, and they used to have from their penthouse um, conference room. They used to have a, a nice view across the Hudson River, um, and that was taken away from them when uh, Bull redid the building. He stripped off all the beautiful ornamentation, the original ornamentation of the building, and he and he clad it with uh, uh, gold glass and steel, and he took it up three floors so he could claim more. Um, more floors, like he could have the most floors of any building in the neighborhood, uh, which block their view. So now <laughs> they have no view. All they have is they open their, uh, their the, the blinds in the conference room and they see gold glass uh, as far as they can see. And the light comes around in the afternoon. It reflects back into the into the conference room, this sort of 
yellow tinfoil light <laughs> that comes in and they have to shut the blinds every afternoon. So it's kind of, uh, you know, just makes them angry when they think about it. But the real anger is coming from the fact that this particular president has messed up travel. He's gotten people so afraid to travel that it's taking a um, bite out of their business and they have to deal with that. I mean, it's, it's the reality. So I think, you know, the main reason I created that character is that, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be different other places outside of the U.S. But in the U.S., I just feel like Americans are not likely to read anything that doesn't have a reference to Donald Trump. He's he's the air we breathe now. So if you, you don't deal with that one way or another, you're just not relevant. Right. And so I thought, well, let's put it in. Let's make it let's make the story uh, part of real life today. Make it contemporary. It's it's remarkable. I, I read over here in London, um, the newspapers, and and the other day I actually found a newspaper where Trump wasn't in the headlines, and I remarked on it, even <laughs> in London. So um, your story is great, and I obviously have had a lot of experience in the travel industry for having been on the board at last minute and started up my own travel agency in the past. So mm-hmm. on top of the interest in the branding side. And the fact that it's a novel, because I have a creative spirit as well, you, um, you've, you've obviously delved into the travel industry. And I was wondering to what extent this is an idea that you think is, is legitimate. Uh, you know, forgetting the process, which is what you're trying to develop, and, and the bull story. The, the, the idea of the travel industry, is this something that you think that should be shown to the travel industry? I was just wondering what your thought was, was on that. Um, I have talked to people in the travel industry about this um, as part of my research, and um, most are kind of surprised by it, and then they kind of come around and say, you know, this actually has to happen, given the trajectory of AI, artificial intelligence, and the um, sort of um, bad shape of travel agencies around the world. I mean, they just, you know, they're not what they were anymore, sort of like the publishing industry. No doubt. Uh, It's going to happen, so... um, how great if they could do it. Hmm. Um, so, but you know, I haven't shared this with any travel companies other than people I talk to, because I don't really think that's how change happens. I think yeah. companies are in very specific situations and they have to figure out how to go from there. Each to their own path. Yeah. So mm-hmm. Marty, brilliant. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for sharing your time with me, with us. And um, so tell us what's the best way for people to get in touch with you or, of course, uh, get any of your books, including the new one, Scramble. Well, they can sign up on my website. It's martynewmeyer.com. Newmeyer is N-E-U-M-E-I-E-R.com. Uh, for free stuff and uh, news about my books and upcoming workshops. Um, and they can also go to Amazon and get Scramble in three formats, ebook, paperback, and audiobook. Well, Marty, I want to congratulate you on the balls not the bull the balls of doing uh, a novel that is uh, at once interesting captivating and hopefully learning through the process of storytelling so congratulations for that great to have you and thanks again thank you Minter. thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter dialogue show you'll find the show notes and other blog posts on minterdial.com if you enjoyed the show please like the handy facebook button Or better yet, head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. But first, relax to Joss Sachs's finger paint. Oh, film me.
your colors any different way to rid me of the gray and heal me with all your imperfections that you mention in your lack of Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.